Hey everybody, welcome back to the California Dream. It's August 7th, and this is the weekly roundup. So, there are a lot of things on my mind this week, a lot of stuff going on. I'm just going to jump right in and just kind of talk extemporaneously about these. So, let's start with the elephant in the room. Um, pun intended. I don't think I've talked about the recall uh, at all, but we're getting pretty close to it. The ballots are going to go out next weekend, I believe, and there were a number of new polls released, so let's, let's discuss this. So there was an Emerson Next Star poll, um, this was on July 20th, found um, Support for the recall at 43% and opposition at 48%. So uh, 5% against the recall. Um, And then another poll from the same polling group. And this was released on Tuesday, so that would have been uh, the third. Showed opposition 48%, support at 46%. So that means that... um, the gap had narrowed from 5% against the recall to 2%. Then there was the most recent uh, Berkeley IGS Los Angeles Times poll, which showed a three-point margin against the recall, 50% opposed, 47% in favor. So two polls in the past week showing a narrowing of the gap. However, Just a couple days ago, there was another poll released. This one is from Survey USA and the San Diego Union Tribune, uh, conducted between August 2nd and August 4th. And it found 51% in favor of the recall, 40% against. So that is an 11 point uh, margin in favor of the recall. So that's like a 15 point swing. Now, what do I make of these? Um, I really doubt that there's really a double-digit margin in favor of the recall. I think that's kind of stretching it a little bit. But I think all three of these taken together, you have to admit that there is uh, something that the governor should be concerned about here. um, And he needs to take it seriously. So let's just cut to the chase. There are two issues that are going to determine the outcome of the recall. Obviously, with numbers like these, there are uh, some Democrats or some left-leaning independents who are saying that they will vote in favor of the recall. So that that is one thing that's going on. The other issue that's going to determine what happens is turnout. Um, How enthusiastic are various people to go out and vote? It seems at the moment that Republicans are extremely enthusiastic to show up and recall, and everyone else is, eh, you know, whatever. If you are one of those Democrats or left-leaning independents who is either considering voting for the recall or you're not enthused enough to go out and make the effort to vote, let's talk a little bit about uh, what that might mean. I am not going to sit here and defend everything Governor Newsom has done. Um, That's not what I have to do to convince you to vote no on the recall. 
what I have to do is ask you to consider the consequences. What happens if the recall goes through? Well, then we have this strange situation where we have uh, something like 46 or so candidates who qualified for the second question, which says, well, who do you want to replace? And whoever gets the most number of votes in that case then would become the new governor. Um, I don't know how this particular system uh, came to be, how this kind of slipped by, but this is a ridiculous system. Uh, If you have 40, 50, 100 or so candidates on the ballot and it's first past the post, it is very possible for somebody to win a first past the post election with 30, 25, maybe 15% of the vote. How democratic is that? There's got to be a better way to do this if we're going to have this process. The idea that someone can slip into the governorship based on 15 or 20% support, that's just preposterous. But that's what we have. And so let's see who is in the lead. Now, the first two polls that I discussed, they had Larry Elder. So Larry Elder is a conservative talk show host. They had him in the lead, I think about 20% or so, maybe 20 to 25% support. This last poll, however, this is the Survey USA poll, shows Democrat Kevin Pafrath, a YouTuber and real estate broker, with 27%. Now, I have to admit, um, I watch a lot of YouTube channels. Um, I have no idea who Kevin Pafrath is. I'd never even heard that name until just a couple days ago. So I don't know what to say about this person. All I know is he's a Democrat, I guess. He's not a Republican. He's a real estate broker. But nevertheless, there he is. And then second place in the Survey USA, again, Larry Elder. And everyone below him is Republicans. Basically, this uh, Kevin Pafreth, whoever he is, is the only Democrat that really has any support in, in the second question. Now... I want you to look at the bigger picture. I understand. A lot of people are not happy with a lot of the things Newsom has done. And there's a lot of things that you can criticize him on. He's made a lot of mistakes. That is true. However, when the choice is between Gavin Newsom and Larry Elder possibly becoming governor, is this really a choice? You want to have Larry Elder be governor for over a year? Larry Elder has a position on the minimum wage. What is Larry Elder's position on the minimum wage? Does he think uh, we should have the $15 an hour? Does he think we should have $20 an hour? Does he think we should have a minimum wage that's tied to inflation? Uh, What does he think? Well, he does have a value that he thinks the minimum wage should be at, and it is Zero dollars and zero cents. That's right. Larry Elder does not think the minimum wage should exist. He holds the libertarian position that the market should determine uh, the price level for labor and the government should not impose a floor on that. So, that's one position of his. 
Another position of Larry Elder, he has proposed abolishing the Internal Revenue Service. Okay, so he wants to abolish the IRS. What else? Um, he has gone on PragerU, and in a video, Is America Racist? He repeats the tired talking point of black-on-black -black crime. So this is who might become governor of California, someone who is extremely economically libertarian, uh, wants to abolish the minimum wage, wants to abolish the IRS, and repeats dangerous talking points about quote-unquote black-on-black crime, implying that black people are inherently more violent or more dangerous. So realize, if you are considering voting yes on the recall because you're upset about how Newsom handled some aspects of the pandemic, you're upset about the French laundry incident, you're upset about whatever, whatever things he's done, which could be completely justified. Are you going to let your dissatisfaction with a lot of the things that Newsom has done risk putting an extreme right-wing conservative like Larry Elder into the governor's office? Just think about that before you vote. Try to think about your vote in a pragmatic manner and not based on emotion and frustration. All right, other big uh, political news from the rest of the country outside California, um, a race that a lot of people were paying attention to. Uh, Nina Turner had her congressional race last Tuesday and she lost. Now, this is definitely... This one hurts. This was definitely a defeat. This was a loss for the left, a loss for progressives, and a big win for the Democratic establishment. Now, there's a lot of things I could say about this race. Um, I could probably go on for a half hour about it, but I'm not going to go into that. I just want to talk about how this relates to California. So I know that there are a lot of Californians, progressive Californians, who invested a lot into this race. They invested a lot of money. They donated. They invested a lot of time. They may have uh, phone banked or done other uh, investments of time. And they invested a lot of psychological and emotional energy into this race. And my question for Californians is, why are we so invested in an election that's taking place 2,500 miles away, an election that's taking place in a part of the country that 90, 95% of us have never set foot in or never visited? Um, I think the only time I've been to Ohio was... Uh, I think I passed through Cincinnati for a day or two. But other than that, I don't think I've been anywhere else in Ohio. So a place that most of us have never visited, a place that most of us probably don't know anyone. I don't know anyone that lives in Ohio. I actually know, I actually know very few people who live in the Midwest. 
So we are donating our money, our time, our emotions on an election on a place far away, 2,500 miles away, a place that most of us have never been, most of us don't know anyone there, and a race that was decided by a few thousand people, a very, very small number of people. California is a nation of 40 million people, and we have the fifth largest economy in the world. Why are we feeling so invested in an election so far away, determined by so few people? Why do we think that this is such a monumental election that people are literally, you know, almost traumatized by it? They're, they're depressed by it. So that's the question I would ask. Why? It's a simple question. Why? In other national news, uh, Cori Bush was able to pressure the Biden administration to, um, I want to say extend the eviction moratorium, but technically I suppose it's, it's a new eviction moratorium because it's uh, slightly different, so it's not really an extension. So just a couple points about this. Uh, first of all, good on Cori Bush. I don't really have much tolerance for the people who are criticizing her for a photo op. I mean, what do you want her to do? It was a photo op that got something done, so good on her. But this is still kicking the can down the road. It lasts two months. Now we're into, what, the first week of October. Something will have to be done at that point, either some other extension or some real dealing with the problem. I, I already talked about this in previous segments um, where I said they're just kicking the can down the road. And so we got to the end of the extension and, well, they've decided to kick the can down the road again. So we'll see. Th this, is, this is what the federal government does with a lot of things. They just kick problems down the road. They don't ever really deal with them. They never really try to address what's the root problem going on. They just try and find these little incremental things around the edges that will soften the damage for the short term and kind of keep people placated for the moment. But they never really get to any kind of problem solving. And this is another example of that. We'll see what happens again. So we'll wait two months. We'll see what happens again. Again, there's only three possibilities. When we get to the first week of October, there's three possibilities. They're either going to kick the can again, they'll have some other kind of extension, or they'll deal with the problem in a real way, unlikely, or we'll just have a lot of people go homeless. Millions of people will just go homeless and the evictions will continue. And that's probably the most likely eventually in the long run. I don't have much hope, but... Good job, Cori Bush. This pressure that she exerted will prevent a lot of people from being evicted in the short run, which is a good thing. Lastly, there was a report that came out just a couple days ago from the Commonwealth Fund. It's titled Mirror, Mirror 2021, Reflecting Poorly. Subtitled, Healthcare in the U.S. Compared to Other High-Income Countries. 
And the goal of this report was to compare the performance of healthcare systems of 11 high-income countries. Okay, so these are really the most, you know, economists would say developed, but the, the wealthiest countries, they have the most uh, resources and everything. And so they uh, analyzed across 71 performance measures in five domains, access to care, care process, administrative efficiency, equity, and healthcare outcomes. And what were the results? Well, first of all, the highest performing countries were Norway, the Netherlands, and Australia. And guess who came in dead last? If you answered the United States, you win the prize. Yes, you are correct. The United States came in last, despite spending far more of its GDP on healthcare than any of the other countries that were studied. The U.S. ranked last on access to care, administrative efficiency, equity, and healthcare outcomes. The only domain that it did reasonably well in was it scored second on measures of care process. So good for you there, but dead last in everything else. The conclusion that they say, quote, four features distinguish top performing countries from the United States. One, they provide for universal coverage and remove cost barriers. Two, they invest in primary care systems to ensure that high-value services are equitably available in all communities to all people. Three, they reduce administrative burdens that divert time, efforts, and spending from health improvement efforts. And four, they invest in social services, especially for children and working-age adults. So... This issue of healthcare in the United States, it goes beyond the healthcare industry, it goes beyond the insurance industry, it goes beyond the pharmaceutical companies. It's really, it's a very broad cultural and social problem. There's so many issues that intersect and interact with healthcare that you really can't just look at it in isolation. You have to look at everything holistically. And because the United States does such a poor job in so many different areas, that all relates to the healthcare issue, and that contributes to the U.S. coming in dead last in this report. So I will link to this report. You can go read the whole thing. It's not too long. But again, not too surprising. Last bit of podcast news. Um, I will be releasing another episode on Monday. It's actually going to be released in two parts. I'll release the first half on Monday, and then two weeks later, I'll release the second half. It's um, almost two hours total. So I spoke to someone from one of the biggest polling companies in the country, and we talked about election forecasting in general, about things going on in the country, and also, uh, in particular, we spent quite a bit of time talking about some of the recent surveys that have been done on secessionist sentiment and independence. So it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I think we'll have this particular guest uh, back on in the future from time to time. Okay, that's all for me. I'll talk to you next week. Have a good week.